0: Welcome to our verse-by-verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. Open your Bibles Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. A series I've entitled The Savior King and His Kingdom. Um, if you were hoping for a really <clears throat> uplifting message today, hang on. It'll be good, I pray. Sadness is a part of the human condition. Because we care about things, it hurts when something happens to those things we care about. There's a direct connection between how much we care and how much we hurt. And the more we care, the more it hurts. This is especially true about people. Because we love, it hurts when they are gone, either through separation or by death. My mother went to be with the Lord a few years ago. On an an almost daily basis, I am reminded about her. There are so many things in my life that remind me about her. Her house is 150 feet from my house. And so, you know, every day I'm reminded of her. Yesterday was her birthday. I wanted to hug her and wish her a happy birthday. I couldn't. And that makes me sad. And whenever I feel sad about her or, or anything else, I try to lean back into God's arms and allow him to comfort me. And, and there's a reason why I can do that. Because God's word has made promises to us He's made promises to us about about those who have gone before us, about our future, about their future, about their eternity, about our eternity. And because I know God's promises, I know what God's word says about those things, I can take comfort as I think about her. I think about her dancing on the streets that are golden. I think about her pain-free. I think about her just just. In in fullness of joy, I think about those things and it comforts me. And I look forward to the day when those same things will be true about me. Not that I'm rushing toward that particular destination. I guess, you know, I'm a year older today, so maybe I am rushing. It seems like it was just yesterday that I, you know, was a year older then. It goes faster and faster. One of the names of the Holy Spirit is the comforter. When we are sad, if you are sad today, you have a comforter. You have someone that if you will allow him to, will bring comfort to you. And that comfort comes through an understanding, a knowledge of who God is, who he is, who, you know, what he's promised us, what he's said to us. If we will embrace those things, we will know God's embrace of us. And we will know his comfort. As a matter of fact, without this, you can have no comfort. There is no comfort that can really bring you to that place of peace and comfort that you desire. So as we get prepared for this message. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit maybe to bring the comfort we need right this very moment if we need it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace, your mercy, your love. We thank you for your word which gives to us all that we need. If we would, if we would know it, if we would believe it, if we would obey it, if we would embrace it, we would know the comfort that only it can bring. The world promises so much and gives so little. Your word promises everything and gives it. And so we thank you for that. And we lift up this time and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a world, and in this world we usually have to deal with the influence of the world, right? I mean, if you're in the world, the world is trying to influence you. It's trying to draw you along in a certain direction to cause you to think, to feel, to do a certain thing, you know, along its trajectory. And in case you're wondering, that's the wrong way. (laughs) Wherever it's going is the wrong way. But that's what it's trying to influence you toward. And if we allow it, just like getting caught up in the currents of a river, it'll drag you along to that waterfall at the end, which will destroy you and we have to we have to resist that as christians we're called while we while we live in this world and being influenced by this culture we need we're called to live in god's kingdom in this world and to conform ourselves to the culture of the kingdom of god well to do that we need to understand that culture right The Beatitudes describe the culture of the kingdom of God, describe the attributes and the character traits of someone living in the kingdom of God. And so to live in the culture of the kingdom of God, not only do we need to know it, understand it, believe it, and do it, but we must also abandon the culture of the world. We have to turn away from it. Romans 12, 2 tells, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You gotta turn away from that and tor- turn toward this. Turn away from the culture and turn toward the kingdom of God, the culture of the kingdom of God, the things of the kingdom of God. We do that so that we may prove what is the, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's hard. It's hard because our nature, human nature, tends to seek approval and acceptance by those we are living around. It's just natural to us. We wanna be apart, we wanna be connected, we wanna be accepted by those that we are around. And, and when, we, when we try to live in the kingdom of God and we're living in a culture that's opposed to the kingdom of God, that's a bit of a problem, right? That's a challenge, that's a a struggle. It's a daily struggle we go through. But it's something we must engage in. It's a conscious, deliberate act to resist the culture of this world and to try to adapt and to live according to the culture of the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes is where we are in the scriptures right now in Matthew The Beatitudes of Jesus are simple, seemingly simple proverb-like statements. Little phrases that seem so simple. You could could learn them in an afternoon, but I promise you, you'll spend a lifetime learning how to live them. They teach us what is the Christ-like character of those living in the kingdom of God in this world today, in this, in this broken, wicked, God-hating, Christ-rejecting culture, this is how we're to live. Last time we learned about being poor in spirit, and, and that meant that we, that we understand and accept that we are spiritually bankrupt before God, that when we come to God, we have nothing We have nothing that makes us worthy of his grace. We have nothing that makes us worthy of forgiveness. We have nothing that makes us worthy of heaven. We have nothing that's worthy of anything from God. We bring nothing. No, that's not true. We actually bring one thing. Do you know what it is? Sin. It's the only thing we bring to God. It's the only thing we have to bring to God. But when we do, you know what he does? He forgives us. He forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There's a radical thing. The only thing we have, he takes away. But then what does he do? He gives us the kingdom of God. He said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When we come to God empty, we come to God with nothing, he says, okay, good, here, take everything. Wow, what a good God we worship. We're going to look at the second beatitude today. One whole verse. Hang on. We'll get through it. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There are things in this life that will cause us to mourn. If you live long enough, you will be sad. Right? Most of us don't get out of you know like, you know, Two-year-olds, they're sad because they didn't get ice cream or something. And the older we get, the more mature we get in life, the deeper are the hurts that we experience in mourning because the deeper we learn how to love and the deeper we love, the deeper we, we share life and the, <clears throat> these different things of life, the more it hurts when they're gone. Now, I don't need to do a survey. I'm sure I'd get 100% response if you had to choose today whether to be sad or to be happy. I'm pretty sure, you know, except for, except for the weirdos, everybody would say, I'd rather be happy, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's our natural desire. I'd rather be happy than sad. Now, there's nothing wrong with being happy. Even in church, did you know that? Did you know you could be happy in church? One of the signs of a healthy Christian, or church, is joy and laughter. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Christians ought to be these somber, boring, dull, obnoxious creatures that nobody wants to be around. We should be a joy to everyone around us. They should experience joy just being our presence. Why? We got Jesus. We have the greatest gift that has ever been given to all of humanity. We have that. Not only that, we have the kingdom of God. We have everything. We should be happy about that. And the people around us ought to know that. Solomon said, being happy is good for you. Proverbs seventeen twenty-two: a merry heart does good like medicine. A happy heart is good for you. He did also say, That there's a right time for laughing and weeping. Put the two of them together. Ecclesiastes 3, 4. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. There is a time for all of these things. And when we gather together... When we gather in a place like this at a time like this, if we did a survey around this place, we'd find a combination of things. We'd find reasons to be sad. We'd find reasons to be happy. We'd find reasons to be sad and happy in the same people. Because that's life in this world. And Paul says we ought to respond according to where they are. In Romans twelve fifteen, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Then we gather, and we're together with one another, and we come across somebody, and they got a reason to rejoice. What should you do? Oh, yeah, but if you only knew what my life was like. Oh, shut up! No, rejoice. <laughs> Sorry, did I say that out loud? It's even on tape. It's even on the on the internet. Sorry. Don't whine and complain. Life is not that bad. When we come across somebody who's weeping, somebody who's sad, gosh, it breaks my heart when I say, oh, yeah, but you know, you know, look at the bright side. <laughs> okay, uh, no, I won't say it, but you know what I'm thinking right this moment. You know, no, no, weep with them. No, their sadness is real. And while you may not feel it the same way that they would, you don't feel it the same way they do. Just recognize they're feeling something and to them it's real and we should join them in that thing. And while all of that is true, Jesus is calling us to something much deeper than that here. Much different. There are a lot of things in this world that will make us sad. And sadly, we miss the big one. The one, the biggest reason why we should be sad. And that's what he's referring to here in this. Nick Wilson said this. If you don't know who he is, you can ask me later. Jesus is calling his people to grieve over the very things that grieve him. And he pronounced a blessing on those who will mourn over the things that cause anguish in the heart of God. For most of us, our sadness is very selfish. Selfish. It's about what I'm feeling. It's about how it impacts me. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It is the way it is. I am sad about my mother not being here because I I want her here. You know, if I understood the heart of God, I can't say that God would be sad about her passing away. Why? Because she went to be with him. And all of the hard things of her life are gone. What grieves the heart of God? One word, sin. Sin grieves God's heart. Genesis 6, 5 and 6 says this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. God was grieved over the sin he saw. You understand something. Our sin costs God nothing. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make him less. It doesn't, it doesn't take anything away from God. God is complete. God is whole. God is perfect in all ways. Our sin doesn't impact him at all. But it does impact us. And it impacts those around us. Mankind was created to be an intimate communion fellowship with God. And sin separates creator God from his creation it it makes a separation a distance between that in God's mind should not exist I grieve my mother's passing because we are separated the relationship has been interrupted and my grief is proportional to my love and, and, and you know, I, if you know me at all, you know that I'm not an uber emotional emoting person. I don't let a lot of emotion come out. And it's not, it's not because I'm holding it back. I'm not stuffing anything. It. It's, like it's just not natural for me to do that. My children have, have rarely seen me cry. Rarely. I'm telling you probably less than five times in their life. I'm not gonna name the child, but at one point in that child's growing up, they made a really bad choice. And the day that I had to, we, Kelly and I had to confront them about this bad choice, that child saw me cry. And, And they would tell you, that hurt them more than being caught. Seeing me, Daddy, cry. They had had never seen it like that. Why? Because I knew something that they didn't. I knew what it was going to cost them. And they didn't know that. They didn't understand it. One of the things that grows as our faith grows is our understanding of how much God loves us. It's one of the things we come to, come to really understand. God loves me. Now, when we get saved, you know, or even early on, oh, Jesus loves you, okay, okay. He loved, enough, he loved you enough to die for you. Oh, wow, okay, that was a lot. But as we grow in our faith and we understand the richness and the depth and the, and the, the significance of what it really means and how much he loves us, it becomes, it becomes this just enormous, just massive thing in our minds. His love for me is infinitely greater than my love for my mother or my children or my wife or anyone else. Infinitely greater is his love for me. And it grieves God's heart when my sin separates me from him. It, it breaks his heart that he can't express or 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 show that love for me the way that he would if I did not have that particular sin in my life. Now we might be tempted to believe, well, Jesus forgave us; he died for our sins and forgave us. So there's nothing between us and God. Okay, well, you can you can you can say that. The problem is not that we have sinned. We've all done that. We've all done that. We've all done that and Christ's blood cleanses us of that, the consequence of that sin. The problem, our problem is that we have a nature that is inclined to sin. Let me say that again. Our problem is that we have a nature that is inclined to sin. If you leave your nature alone to do what it wants, it's gonna sin. That's what it does. And it's a battle that we will fight for the rest of our lives. Hopefully you're having more victories and losses than that, but that's the reality. And the Apostle John has some strong words for those who would disagree with that statement. If you say, oh, no, 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 you don't understand, Pastor. I'm holier than you are. And you very well might be. But John says, 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Who is John speaking to? Believers. He's speaking to believers. If you say you have no sin, mm. later he says you, you make God a liar. Anybody think it's a good idea to call God a liar? Absolutely not. Jesus is calling us to an honest evaluation of our own heart, of our own soul, of our own nature. And if we're honest, we'll agree with Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? You know who knows it? God does. And he loves you anyway. Wow. The apostle Paul looked at his heart and this is what he said, Romans 7:24, "O wretched man that I am." I I know what I'm supposed to do, and I don't do it. I know what I'm not supposed to do, and that's exactly what I do. I'm messed up. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He goes on to say, Christ Jesus will do it. He does deliver us. Paul is expressing in that one verse the first two Beatitudes. He's recognizing that he, he absolutely has nothing to bring to God. Here's the most spiritual man walking on the earth at that time, writing the most important piece of literature in human history, and he says, man, I am messed up. He knew that his nature was inclined to sin, and, there, and it, was, it, was, it was there, it was active, and he was regularly having to deal with it. And he knew he was utterly helpless to do anything about it. He understood his spiritual poverty. And his response was to cry out to God in desperation, God, save me from me. And it broke Paul's heart that he was not like Christ, not the way he thought he should be. Jesus says here, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who recognize this reality, this reality of this nature within them, that is inclined to sin, is inclined to drift away, is inclined to doubt, is inclined to just let the world influence it away from him. Remember from the last time that blessed can mean happy, but in context it means approved, approved by God. God approves the person who can see. The, the reality of their own sin, who can confront it and can look at it and recognize how, how bad it is to recognize that anything in me, anything in me that can be described as sin breaks God's heart. And that I, I as I recognize that, I, I want to be as heartbroken about it as God is. Because that's the only way i'm going to change his approval god's approval is important to us you know we say when we when we call upon others for god's blessing that should be our desire we should be desired god's blessing right i mean don't we want god's blessing well yeah you know why because he promised it to us you should want everything god Promises, He's promised us his blessing. And he's promised us here very specifically how to achieve those blessings, how to achieve his approval, his approval when God approves of you, good things happen. That's kind of how God works. You know, if I'm doing, if I'm doing what, God, what, God, what pleases God, what causes God to smile upon my life, he's inclined as a loving father to do good toward me. He says he will not withhold any good from me. In this case, in the, in the context of our verse today, it says that for those who mourn, they shall be comforted. When our heart is broken for the things that break God's heart, now I'm, I'm talking specifically about sin and our, our own personal sin, but we could expand that, beyond that, to other people's sin, to the sin in the world, the evil in this world, and loss and all of that. It should extend ultimately that, but not until it works in here first. Too often we're focused out there when we need to be focused in here first. When we allow our heart to be broken for the things that break God's heart, and we respond humbly in faith, crying out for him to act, he will. And he'll do it by giving us comfort, helping us to trust him as we wait for him to act, do we believe that God will act? Well, yes, we believe it because he says he will. We don't know how, we don't know when, we don't know what, but he will. But what does it mean to be comforted? This is so important because comfort can be one of those nebulous kinds of a things. Everybody might have a different definition of what comfort is. And, and that, In reality, that's true because we will all know comfort differently. But the comfort that's being referred to here, if we are focused on the reality that he's referring to, the idea that we, are, that we are mourning over the things that God mourns over, the things that God grieves about, the things that break God's heart, and ultimately the greatest of those things is sin, because ultimately sin is the reason why there are things like sickness and disease and death, that's the reason why all those things happen, we recognize those are the things that break God's heart and we allow our heart to be broken for it, then God brings comfort to our hearts. And that comfort comes for us individually, personally, from the understanding and the the belief that our sins have been removed from us. When I, when I recognize I have this nature that is inclined to sin, and I have it just like all the rest of you do, I have this nature, and whenever I, I'm confronted with that, and I, and, I, and, and I allow God's heart to break my heart, to make, to make me feel broken over the fact that there's anything in me that could cause me any separation between me and God, that it grieves my heart, God then reminds me He brings comfort to me by reminding me, child, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are washed away. It is is that, that sense of full and free forgiveness of sins by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ that can comfort me when I'm confronted with the reality that I am wretched. By acknowledging our sin and mourning over them and knowing there's nothing we can do about it. And that's one of the huge, huge steps that we sometimes miss. I can't fix my sin, but God can. All I have to do is let him. And the Holy Spirit comes in. You know, I have to obey. There is that part. I have to believe and obey. But it's God that's going to do all the work. He's going to do all the heavy lifting. He's the one that's going to bring me to that place of deliverance from that thing. When I do that, I know that I'm forgiven. Every last sin. I'm even forgiven for that nature of sin that's in me. And we should mourn, often, regular, daily. Every encounter we have with our own sin, every time we encounter our own sin, it ought to bring us to a place of mourning. Listen, the most dangerous place for you to be as a Christian is to be okay with sin, with your own sin. It's okay. When you start saying, it's okay that I, because God forgives me, mm. That's a bad place. That's a dangerous place because it leads you down a path that will ultimately make, it's okay that I can, do it. I can do anything I want because God forgives me. It's not okay. It breaks God's heart. It should break ours. We mourn our sin. We encounter our sin every day. We should mourn over it. But then we also are comforted by the cleansing blood of Christ washing us clean of our sin. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteous. How often should we do that? How often should we confess our sin and be cleansed? Every time it comes to mind. Every time. But then we have to believe that verse too. It's one thing to say, okay, I confess my sin, you've cleansed me, but do I believe it? Do I believe that I'm washed clean of that sin? Because that there's, a, there's a consequence to believing that. There's a result to believing that. There's something that happens when I believe that I'm cleansed of my sin that won't happen if you don't believe it. David said, he understood this truth in Psalm 32. When he said, blessed are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is he. We will be blessed when we acknowledge the reality that I am a sinner saved by the grace of God, and, and when I confess my sin, he cleanses me from all unrighteous. A healthy Christian regularly is moving between mourning and comfort. Mourning and comfort. Mourning and comfort. It's happening on a regular basis, moving between the two. To so suggest that you don't have to deal with that it, on a regular basis, is again to start justifying bad behavior. To start, start explaining away how you're different than every other Christian on earth, that you're somehow holier than Pastor Randy. Sorry, you're not. No one is. Well, actually, he's not all that special either. <laughs> Debbie's pretty amazing. We gotta be moving between the two. Listen. The church is sick right now, not this one. As a whole, we don't mourn over our sin. The church does not mourn over the fact that it it is not, as a whole, is not confronting and dealing with sin. You can go to some churches and never hear the word sin. Never hear the word repent. Why? Because it makes people feel bad about themselves. Well, I hate to break this to you, you should feel bad about yourself. You're not not where Christ wants you to be. You You ought to mourn. You ought to be heartbroken that there's any sin in you at all. But then when you do that, when you do realize that, you lean back into the arms of Christ and you acknowledge what he did for you. You allow him to wrap his arms around you and to give you that comfort that only he can give you knowing that he's died for your sins. He died for that sin. And when you do that, you can know his presence. Paul said something like that. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, he says, "All, All as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The idea is that kind of moving in between that sorrow and rejoicing. It ought to be a natural occurrence in the life of a believer as we deal, regularly deal with this, this process that we're going through where we're you know, being sanctified we're being made more holy every day. As we're going through that, the fact that we need to be made more holy, more holy is because we're not holy enough. Right? You know why you're not holy enough? Because there's sin in you. And until that sin's completely out of you, that process is gonna go on and on and on. And if we're not dealing with it and we don't have the same heart about it as God has, then we're not gonna, we're not gonna do it the way we should, and we won't make the progress that we need to. As our faith grows, and we grow in our knowledge of God and, and his holiness and his justice and his love, you know, for those who are seeking God, truly seeking God, that knowledge is gonna remind them how much better, bigger, more holy, more perfect God is than I am. And that God's calling me up. He's calling me higher. He's calling me to greater holiness. He's calling me to perfection. And when I realize that I'm I'm not there yet, it should cause me sorrow. I should be sad about that. Because I know I'm missing something. I'm missing something in my relationship with God. Because I'm not where I need to be. And then I humble myself before him and say, God, I'm not where I need to be. And he says, Oh, yeah, I know that. And I allow him to wrap his arms around me. I'm washed clean of that. And you know what that makes? That makes it possible for me to move on, to move closer to him, to take that next step of faith. because of Christ, what he did for us, we're allowed something that ought to fill us with awe and wonder every time we think about it. Hebrews 4.16 says that, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We we can't possibly understand the, the 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 depth and richness of what that verse tells us. That verse tells us that we can go right now, because of what Jesus did, into the very presence of God. If that doesn't fill you with awe and wonder, the idea that God, who is bigger, more infinite, more powerful, more holy than anything that this world will ever know, has invited us into his presence because of what Christ did, because I believe in what Christ did. And in God's presence, this idea of comfort, we must, I think, get our mind in that idea of of God's embrace. The, The idea of God wrapping his arms around us by the Holy Spirit. It's in that place that we know joy, and peace, and hope, and love. Psalm 1611 says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you want to know comfort, and peace, and joy, and happiness, it's in God's presence. The Beatitudes, something about the Beatitudes is is they're paradoxical. They are are exactly opposite of what you might imagine. The the pathway to joy is mourning. Well, that makes perfect sense, right? No, it's not logical to us. It's a paradox. It, it, It says the exact opposite of what I would think is what is true. The pathway to the life you really want is 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 rejecting this life, rejecting your life, and living the life that God wants for you. That's the life you really want. Can't live the life that you think will make you happy. You know why? It won't. Unless it's exactly the life that God wants you to live. That's the pathway to happiness. You know, maybe it's my personality type, maybe the way I was raised, or some combination of the two, but I have seldom sensed the need to seek anyone's approval. I am, it's just a weird thing about me. You could say to me, you know, I don't really care for you too much, and my response is, okay, Every time Randy says it, it you know, I just have to like tell him, okay, whatever, man. But as I've grown in the faith, I am sensing a deep, abiding need within me for God's approval. I need God to approve of me. It's, it's something that is growing and rising up in me. I still don't care that much about whether people approve of me or not. I'm going to live the life that God I believe God's calling me to and if you don't like it sorry I'm going to try to be nice about it. I won't won't respond to you the way I respond to Randy about it but you know I hey I want God to approve of my life because I know now that it's through his approval through his smile over my life that I'm gonna know blessings. I'm gonna know good through that. That, that just living the life that, make, that I know God approves of, that he smiles over, that is the pathway to good. That is ultimately the pathway to joy and peace and hope and happiness is through that life. Seeking happiness for happiness sake is not a good plan. It won't work. But when I seek a life that, 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 that results in God smiling over my life, then I do experience that joy and peace and hope and all the good that I want in life. Well, how do I do that? It's right here. It's in the book. The better I get to know God through his word, the better I I learn and obey, and the the, the better I I believe all of these things, the better able I am to look at my life and say, okay, that's what God wants. That's how God wants me to live. That's how God wants me to think and to feel and to to respond to the world around me. And when I do that, I can sense. And there are times where I I can consciously sense God's smile over my life. I can't explain. I can't tell you how I know it. I just know God is looking down upon my life and smiling. Not all the time. I'll go ahead and admit that. No, I still got a sin nature just like everybody else. But when when I'm doing it the way that God calls me to, by faith and obedience, I know his smile. I want God to approve of my life. And these beatitudes are a great tool that we can use that point the way to that life, to that life that, that causes us to experience and to know his smile. These character traits are, are, are for someone to know God and to know his approval. They, they, are, they are traits that if we can, if we can manifest them and, and not just do them, but to be them. It's not about just, you know, you know, expressing sadness when we realize something is wrong or something is, you know, breaks God's heart. It's feeling sadness when we know that we're breaking God's heart. Or that something else breaks God's heart. It doesn't matter what it is. We can look, we can watch the news. If you want to if you want to know what breaks God's heart, watch the news. Get onto social media. of everything on social media breaks God's heart. I just made up that statistic in case you're wondering. (laughs) Do you know that 87% of all statistics are made up on the spot? (laughs) That one too. (laughs) Listen, these are the traits that unleash the grace of God into your life. These are the things that if we will manifest them by, by being them, you know, there people refer to them the be attitudes, but the be attitudes. Have this attitude as a part of your life. It is who you are. L- allow it to saturate your behaviors, your, your thoughts, your feelings, all of it. Let it be real in you. And that, these are the traits of someone who's living in the kingdom of God while living in this world and, and resisting or rejecting the influence of our culture. They are the things that if we want to unleash God's amazing grace, and somebody says, I want that, right? We want to unleash the grace of God into our lives, into our marriages, into our families, into our communities, into our church, into our country. Whatever, whatever you're connected with, we want God's grace unleashed in those things. It's because God's people are being these things. We were recently stirred by the revival taking place in Asbury College. And people might ask, you know, why why don't we see revival happening and then fill in the blank here, there, wherever? Revival can begin when we accept these things as real in my life. When I accept the reality that I, that, that I am called to be poor in spirit and I recognize I, I'm probably not as poor in spirit as I ought to be. There's too much Rick in Rick. Too much Rick in my spiritual life. Too much Rick that thinks he can do things that only God can do. And, and until I get to that place where I, I recognize, I confess before God, I am poor. I have nothing to bring to you God and believe it to be true. Until that day happens, revival can't happen. Revival happens and someone realizes, I have nothing to bring to God. And if any good is gonna come out of my life, it's because God is doing something, not me. He may use me, he probably will use me if I let him, but it's not because of me. We must get to that place where we know that we are poor in spirit. Interesting, the, the, first, the first of the Beatitudes tends to focus on the mind. But at some point, then it has to move down to our heart. And our heart has got to feel what God feels. It's got to know the, the heartache as we look at these things in the world. I I challenge people on a regular basis. When you're looking at these things, people come to me and say, Have you seen this? Have you talked? Have you heard about this? And they and they and they sound angry. Is that the right response? Is anger the right response? Or is grief the right response? I think more often than not, grief ought to be the right response. Anger may be. There may be a place for anger, but not before grief. Grief always comes first. Knowing what what God feels about it and how it breaks his heart to see his creation doing just abominable things to themselves and to each other. It breaks his heart. gotta move down there. It's gotta, it's gotta go from the mind. It's gotta start in the mind, then move down to the heart. That's when revival can begin. When we, when we start to think about ourselves as God thinks about us, as God looks at us, and God says, oh, poor, poor Rick. You got nothing. If I can just agree with him. And then I can feel what he feels when he looks at my life, when he looks at the life around me, if I could just feel that, that's when revival can happen. Revival is not a church thing. You know, people will say, you know, know, what are you doing to bring revival? My response to you is, what are you doing? It's not a church thing. It's a heart thing. It begins with each one of us. I'll say it starts with me. It ought to start with me because anytime I'm, starting, I'm talking about anything spiritual, it's got to start with me. If you were talking about it, it should start with you. I would ask you, what are you doing to bring revival into your own heart first? Then revival can come. Don't ask the church what they're doing. Ask yourself what you're doing. Revival will end up in the church but only after it starts in our hearts. Sadly, this is where most revivals die. The price of spiritual poverty and being broken by our own sin is just too high for most people. They won't go there. They won't take that journey. We shouldn't expect revival in the church until there's revival in our own hearts. Until we understand that, that, that I can do nothing of, in and of myself, but through Christ, what can I do? All things. All things. It's he that will do it. It's the Holy Spirit that will do it, not me. We need to let God revive our own hearts and trust the Holy Spirit to do the rest. A revival is a Holy Spirit activity. It's not a human activity. He involves humans in it, hopefully lots of them, but it's a Holy Spirit activity, and it begins when we let our hearts be wide open to what God wants to do through him. It's my belief that God wants to bring revival in these last days. I'm actually going to talk about that in the Future Today meeting. We're going to prepare for communion here momentarily. And we need to pray. We need to ask God to begin that radical work in us. Now, now I don't want you to feel convicted about the fact that there isn't revival going on actively around us. It's a Holy Spirit work. When the Holy Spirit wants to bring revival, revival comes. And so we just open ourselves up to it. And so that's my prayer. That's what our prayer should be. God, make me open to what you want to do in me and through me. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you now and thank you for this time. And as we prepare our hearts to go into communion, I pray, Lord God, that you would would do something radical in us, that we would be open to anything that you want to do. And Lord, first and foremost, we want to be open. If, if, if you're here, you're watching online, you've never opened your heart for the very, for the very first time or, or maybe gotten cold to God through whatever life circumstances have, have come your way, that you would open your heart to him, either for the very first time or having, having, having been cold to him for some time. Open your heart, allow God to minister to you right now. And allow God to do that work inside of you that only he can do. Yield yourself to it completely and he will do amazing and radical things. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, your mercy, your love. And as we go into communion, we want to thank you for what it all represents. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and His Kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com slash give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.